Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Paying the price, Dr. Anthony Fauci questions the health cost of reopening. By Amazon, the retail giant's working practices criticized by a resigning employee. And see you in September. The CEO of Slack tells staff we won't rush back. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you this Tuesday, where we're firmly focused on first moves to reopen global economies, including positive signs and the challenges too. Firstly, a shot of coffee here in the United States from Starbucks, who say 85% of their stores will be back in action within days. Meanwhile, the world's fifth largest economy, California, will allow some stores to open by the end of this week. And in New York State, they may start easing some measures and allow some reopening as of next Friday, too. For some of us, it comes as a relief after weeks of lockdown as the economic costs mount, too. For others, it's a reason to be afraid. Reopening comes with renewed health risks, and the number of U.S. COVID-19 cases has only plateaued. It's not come down. Investors, though, showing relief today, comforted, I think, also by reports that U.S. intelligence allies are playing down concerns that COVID-19 came from a lab in Wuhan. The hope, of course, being that it might reduce the risk of future punishment on China over the pandemic. European stocks, meanwhile, benefiting from a reduction in restrictions and recovery hopes in Europe, too. Oil giant Total, meanwhile, being rewarded for maintaining its dividend. If you remember last week, competitor Royal Dutch Shell cut their dividend for the first time since the Second World War. To Asia now, and a quick look at what we're seeing there. I have to tell you, most markets were closed for a holiday. Hong Kong shares, though, gaining on news that gyms, cinemas and beauty parlours can now reopen there. Fingers crossed that where nations in Asia in particular lead, others will be able to follow safely. Let's get to the drivers on that point. So how soon is too soon when it comes to reopening economies? The top U.S. infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, put it like this. It's the balance of something that's a very difficult choice, like how many deaths and how much suffering are you willing to accept to get back to what you want to be some form of normality sooner rather than later. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, some might argue when you're talking about the cost being human life, there's no acceptable risk here. But I'm actually quite surprised that it's taken this long for states to start reopening measures, given the sheer economic damage that we've seen. 
And, you know, I think that people have been pretty disciplined overall as mm-hmm. well, right? That for these weeks, people have really maintained their physical distance. They have stayed away from their, their workplace or their workplace has sent them home. And they've really been working hard to try to do their part for the better of everybody, right? But now we are seeing this thawing of this freeze in activity, careful thawing. You've got Macy's opening some stores this week. Simon Properties, a big mall operator in the U.S., opening in in several states. Uh, You're going to see peeking out, (laughs) uh, consumers peeking out and deciding if, if they're really ready to go back to normal. And I don't think they are. Yeah, I mean, this was highlighted in Endelman Trust survey that said, and it looked around the world actually, but it looked at the United States in particular, and it said two-thirds of people here are frightened that we're moving too quickly to reopen. In my mind, to some degree, I think that's a good thing if it keeps us cautious. It keeps people wearing masks. It keeps them washing their hands. But at the same time, Christine, as you and I discuss, confidence, consumer confidence is everything. And I think companies know that, right? For example, Macy's opening up stores. Its executives say there's no playbook for this, but there will be social distancing. There will be markings in these stores to show how far people should be staying away from each other. There will no be no more ear piercings or, you know, having somebody touch your face when you're going to the makeup counter. They know that uh, the American public, the global public probably, is not ready for that yet. And so they're going to have to tweak their playbooks with that consumer confidence in mind. When the consumer feels safe and the consumer feels secure, that's when the consumer spends again. This is interesting. So you think actually from a business perspective, you almost have to be too careful, too protective of workers, and and then you take the responsibility and reassure customers. I think that if people, look, I think people know that the the new normal will not be like what it was in February. I mean, that's gone for now. So how are we going to adapt? Um, There's a lot of talk about restaurants moving outside in my town, for example. They're talking about closing streets and moving restaurant tables outside for the summer. And I think that you're going to be more likely to see people going back to restaurants if there's a big distance between them, you know, contactless payments and the like. And you see business owners starting to talk about how they can transfer their business for the cautious consumer to make the cautious consumer feel safe and secure. And then that will be the path back to a healthy and normal economy again. Yeah, it's just going to take time. And for the travel sector, for tourism globally, this is, um, yeah, devastating. (laughs) Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Coming up in the show, we're going to be speaking to the Slack CEO. His message, as I mentioned at the top of the show, was we're not coming back to work until at least September. We'll talk about the psychology of that decision for workers and what led him to that. In the meantime, intelligence shared by U.S. allies suggests that coronavirus is highly unlikely to have escaped from the Wuhan's Institute of Virology. A Five Eyes report contradicts claims made by the U.S. President Donald Trump and his Secretary of State. David Culver is in Shanghai for us. David, it's interesting because this is what, of course, the Chinese have argued the whole way along. Look, you're you're getting this wrong. You're accusing us of the wrong things. They fought back. Important if we look at the economics here and the fears that perhaps this could result in an escalation of trade tensions at particularly the wrong time for both nations and the world. You're right, Julia. Trade tensions would be one part that could escalate here. In fact, even state media today suggesting in an editorial that maybe they put off discussions for a phase two trade talk. 
Of course, trade one, phase one was, was signed in mid-January, just before this outbreak. But that would push things back further, and it would do damage to President Trump politically. So that's something they floated around. But the other reality here is that this could lead to not just a trade war conflict, but an actual war conflict. And, and I say that based on a lot of the rising concerns uh, that tensions here are increasing between the U.S. and China. Now, I want to go to that intelligence report that you mentioned. It's the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Coalition. It's between the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. And essentially, this suggests that it is highly unlikely that that virus started in a lab in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which we traveled to just a couple of weeks ago. Instead, they say it's more likely that this was an animal-to-human transmission, and it happened at the market, as was initially suggested by Chinese scientists. That's what they're assessing as of now. Of course, it contradicts directly what President Trump has said and what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been saying. And on that point, state media has been fueled once again to continue their attacks against the U.S., not calling out President Trump. They always avoid that strategically, and President Trump likewise avoids criticizing President Xi Jinping. However, they go right after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and they are continuing that rhetoric. And today, CCTV, the state-run broadcaster, during their evening flagship broadcast, suggested that the world should investigate the U.S. for what they allege to be its mishandling of this virus. Julia? To watch the politics here, the messaging, which we know for actually both of these leaders, domestically and internationally, is very important. There was also this report from Reuters suggesting that China's gathering intelligence of what their perception is around the world. And they're about as unpopular at this moment as the perception of China. If you go back to the late 1980s and the Tiananmen Square tragedy, David, what does that mean for Xi Jinping and messaging internally in China? Oh, I think this is really a rattling and and worrisome report to come out. I mean, this suggests that this report showing the anti-China global sentiment, as they've characterized it, you know, worse than more than 30 years, uh, went all the way to the top, went to President Xi Jinping. So he's aware of that. And they look at the worst case scenario being armed conflict. So it really does bring these echoes now of of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War era. And that's what is seeming to be suggested here uh, as they put forward, you know, this idea that uh, perhaps the world is turning against China. And that's the real concern that the Chinese are facing. And it's combined, Julia, with what we're seeing as a rising nationalism. So the climate is, is very, very susceptible to falling into this if this war of words fuels emotions, which in turn could become action. Julia? Yeah, an incredibly dangerous point in time that I think is masked with domestic issues, be they economic and fighting the virus, but the geopolitical undercurrents here and really quite frightening. David Colbert, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Meanwhile, Julia. here in the United States, the vice president at Amazon resigns because the company fired staff who raised safety concerns. Tim Bray was at a senior engineer in cloud computing. He says, I quit in dismay at Amazon's firing whistleblowers who were making noise about warehouse employees frightened of COVID-19. Claire Sebastian has more on this. Claire, clearly this is the allegation coming from a, a former employee, a gentleman who resigned on Friday. What more do we know about the allegations that he's making here? And what are Amazon saying? 
Amazon are not saying anything uh, yet, Julia. They haven't commented on uh, this, this gentleman, Tim Bray's departure. He was a high-ranking uh, executive, the highest ranking so far, uh, to speak out on, on these issues. Now, none of the cases that he talks about uh, were new. We knew about several warehouse workers who were fired, who had spoken out. We knew about uh, a couple of corporate employees who tried to help the warehouse workers uh, who spoke out. But, but Tim Bray, for him, he had been concerned about how the, the company treats its employees since last year, since uh, employees started organizing to push for Amazon to take greater leadership when it came to climate change. He was one of those employees pushing. He said, and we know there were reports at the time uh, of employees who were, who were within that group being threatened with dismissal. But he says that the COVID-19 situation and the, what he sees as retaliation against workers who spoke out really was the tipping point. This is what he said. Here's a quote from him. He says, it's evidence of a vein of toxicity running through the company culture. I choose neither to serve nor drink that poison. He says that he escalated his concerns within the company, but it got to the point where he felt that by staying on as a vice president within the company, he was endorsing these concerns, Julia. This is a huge challenge for a company that's on the front lines, providing essential services to people that are stuck at home ordering. They have thousands of workers. They've hired, what, 175,000 people to try and cope with the demand. In the past, they've said, look, we, we do not condone in any form attacking whistleblowers. But at the same time, if you're behaving badly as an employee, we, we reserve the right to, to challenge that. They find themselves under immense scrutiny at an incredibly difficult time. Yeah. It's a tough moment, whichever way you look at this. It's really tough. And, and I thought it was super interesting because, uh, you know, in the past, Amazon have said, for example, in the case of Chris Smalls, now a fairly high profile uh, figure who, who was an employee at a warehouse on Staten Island who was fired back in March, the company said that, you know, while they support uh, the rights of employees to, to, to criticize workplace conditions, uh, that doesn't come with blanket immunity. He, according to the company, uh, was fired because of violating social distancing rules. But but this is what was really interesting. Tim Bray says that he believes both things are true. The, the complaints of the warehouse workers and the, the, the statements from Amazon that show just how much they're spending, how much they're investing uh, on safety. For example, we just heard the company is basically plowing everything it's going to make in the second quarter back into to safety measures, to higher wages for workers and things like that. But this is what he says about that. He says the big problem isn't the specifics of the COVID-19 response. It's that Amazon treats the humans in the warehouses as fungible units of pick and pack Potential, He says that's not just Amazon, that's capitalism in general. But I think the question here, Julia, is that yes, Amazon is going to emerge from this with greater market share, but it will also, it's looking increasingly likely, emerge with even greater questions around its treatment of employees. We know the New York Attorney General, for example, is looking at this. Yes. Time to bring in monitors, I think. Yeah. Part of being an essential business, and I'd argue the government should be helping with this too, but that's a whole different story. Claire Sebastian great to have you with us. Thank you. Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, having a major rethink on investment following the collapse of its oil income and, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. Although oil prices are off the lows, the world's largest exporter is set to slash spending. One of the world's largest exporters, let's uh, not forget the United States. John Defterius has all the details on this. John, when I, when I saw these numbers and these measures, I was completely astonished at the measures that they're taking. They chose to engage in a price war and oh boy now people are paying the price talk us through some of the details 
Well, the narrative certainly has changed even from Saudi Arabia in the last 10 days, uh, Julia, and now the announcements are coming fast and furious. I think this is the key number, if we can put it up on the screen here. This is uh, net foreign assets being held by the central bank at $465 billion. The problem is this uh, key threshold is a, a half a trillion dollars. But if you go back uh, to 2014, that was $750 billion. So that is cash burn in a period of six years and the lowest level since 2011. And this prompted the very respected Minister of Finance, Mohammed al-Jadan, uh, in an interview over the weekend with an Arabic broadcaster to say that uh, everything's on the table all of a sudden. And we will cut. It will be painful, except for uh, critical needs of the citizens. So that sounds rather uh, dramatic. And it brings into question the 2030 plan for the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the son of the king. Uh, the neon futuristic city, what happens, the big tourist destinations in the mountains, the Red Sea Island resorts. This is all on the drawing board at this stage. The announcements aren't formalized, but you get the message. They are starting to retrench. Uh, Sabek, one of the biggest chemical makers in the world, a reported first quarter a loss of $253 million, and that was before the coronavirus really set in, said it's cutting all capex going forward unless it's essential. And then finally, late night, last night, we heard word uh, through a ministerial decree uh, that private sector companies can cut salaries by 40 percent. That's extremely unusual because of the Saudi penetration in the private sector. Uh, secondarily, if the pandemic continues for six months, they can lay them off. So this is an oil crisis. And one would say on the positive side, this crown prince is not waiting. They're taking measures now to get ahead of the curve. Uh, but it almost sounds like a hint of panic, if you will, Julia. I was about to say that, John. I was about to say, how do these kind of measures resonate domestically and particularly for, one, the handling of a crisis, but what we've seen in the ensuing three to four months in terms of the crown prince? What does this mean socially and domestically and perception of leadership? Well, he has the support at this stage, of course, as the crown prince. Uh, his father is the king. He has this roadmap to go forward. The challenge has been the level of spending and the lack of foreign direct investment. And then you have a price war and then this oil crisis. So clearly he needs to get that all shored up. Uh, again, the finance minister was very direct with the language. Now, you have another benefit here, Julia. Saudi Arabia has some 30 million citizens, so the job is tougher. Uh, you have uh, states like the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, all slowing down. But their sovereign wealth is over $2 trillion. Now, the next level is the bigger states, like in Egypt, that has a population of 90 million consumers, saw the worst PMI figures on record, dropping to 29. So they did all these reforms in 2019 with the International Monetary Fund, devalued the currency, stabilized the economy, and lo and behold, the black swan did arrive here. So these are some of the major challenges in the Middle East, and all these states are dependent on higher oil prices. Finally, the silver lining, if you will. Uh, UBS was saying today by the end of the year we could see a rebalancing in the market, oil at $43 by the end of the year, averaging $55 in 2021. It even prompted a, a tweet from President Trump in the last half hour saying, I like the fact that de demand is rising, so too are oil prices. He doesn't want it too hot, not too cold, but clearly north of $30 a barrel is much better than where we are today. Yeah, but it's just one crisis that we're dealing with at this moment and the broader concerns about demand in COVID-19 are another. When the likes of Saudi Arabia has to put a statement out saying it wants to maintain its peg against the US dollar and not de-peg and, and allow the currency to weaken, 
you know there are challenges in this region. I think that was uh, one of my big takeaways here too. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. We'll keep an eye on uh, some of these measures. Great. Thank you. Coming up after the break here on First Move, exclusive access inside the German airline Lufthansa as it feeds for a bailout. And later in the show, as I mentioned already, the CEO of so-called email killer Slack tells me why companies need to throw everything at communications at this moment. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where we're still looking like we're heading for a green open for U.S. stocks. Look at that positive territory. Investors, I think, remaining hopeful here about the reopening efforts of economies around the world and the transition to the new normal. It's a harsh new normal for some companies, though, and individuals. What about the airline stocks? Well, they're bouncing pre-market after Monday's broader sell-off. Sparked by the news, if you remember, that Warren Buffett has sold his stake in the four biggest U.S. carriers. Well, following that, there are reports that now United is aiming to slash some 30 percent of its management and administration staff this year. A United executive has said in an internal memo that employees should seriously consider taking offered buyouts. In the meantime, Virgin Atlantic says over 3,000 jobs are at risk as passenger demand collapses. It's also looking at temporarily closing operations at Gatwick as it holds bailout talks with the UK government. The airline, founded by Sir Richard Branson, says a recovery to pre-crisis levels may take up to three years. In the meantime, Lufthansa says its survival is its biggest priority as its bailout talks continue with the German government. The group's annual general meeting was held virtually for the first time without shareholders present in the room while Lufthansa's passenger numbers collapse. Cargo operations, meanwhile, are still going on. Senior international correspondent Fred Pleitgen has been granted exclusive access. While most of Lufthansa's passenger fleet stands idle at the company's hub in Frankfurt, grounded due to the coronavirus pandemic, the cargo wing is still humming. This plane carrying medical gear, among other things, getting ready to depart for the U.S. The pilots saying they constantly have to adapt to new rules for international travel in times of the pandemic. We have a longer duty period, so we we need more pilots in the cockpit. Uh, We are flying with four pilots, uh, for example, when flying uh, through China. Lufthansa has even had to convert some passenger planes into cargo planes to meet demand. Those weren't hard to find, as Lufthansa Group says it's only flying about 1% of its usual passenger load. Management saying Europe's largest airline group needs billions in bailout money from the German and other European governments. The Lufthansa Group says of the 760 planes that they own, about 700 are currently on the ground. Many of them don't look like they're going to be taking off anytime soon. Now, Lufthansa says it needs government assistance to get through this crisis, but also to be competitive in the future. European competitors like Air France, KLM, have already secured state assistance. And the Trump administration says it will prop up struggling U.S. carriers with billions of dollars. Lufthansa says it believes the market for international air travel will remain volatile. And Lufthansa Cargo CEO tells me the company is currently adapting to an ever-changing business environment. 
This is clearly a challenge because we have all these assets we have to plan, we need the pilots, we need the traffic rights, all that, so this needs, of course, some days, but sometimes we have uh, to adapt uh, really in hours. For now, Lufthansa continues to bleed money as its plane stands still, with only the occasional one taking off from what is normally one of Europe's busiest airports. Fred Pleitgen, CNN, Frankfurt, Germany. Budget airline Wizz Air says it's adding new routes to Greece and Portugal in anticipation of travel restrictions being eased across Europe. It comes as the Greek government aims to persuade tourists to return this summer. Nick Robinson is uh, once again in Athens for us. Nick, we were discussing your interview with the Prime Minister of Greece yesterday and I was just fascinated as we sit here in the United States and we watch, I think, countries that have managed to tackle this well and begin the process of reopening. How hopeful are people that you speak to there and businesses that the tourists will come back? And, and what measures are they putting in place to reassure them? You know, I think there is a real night and day feeling compared the weekend to today. It's suddenly busy again. And you really feel that this is phase two uh, of COVID-19. The sort of how do we get back economically? Careful steps by the government. You know, what do people here really think? You know, I think everyone is just totally realistic about it. No one thinks it's going to be like it was before this summer. Of course, they're hoping that it will come back to a degree. But there's a double burden with, with, with having tourists, and that is they potentially bring infections. So there's a level of caution about it. But I think this, the airline piece and the international cooperation it is such an important part. It doesn't matter to a degree what the Greek government decides or doesn't decide on this issue. You know, does Germany advise its citizens against visiting uh, other countries like Greece? That's going to play a major factor. And, and airlines, is there a new international agreement uh, for people traveling? Should they have a, a test, a, 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 a COVID-19 test, or, or to see if they've got any kind of immunity against the virus? before they leave home and have a sort of health passport so they arrive, if you will, technically clean uh, and they, they don't travel if they're not. Um, all these questions are still out there. But the government here is putting in place, I mean, uh, just to be really clear, they are putting in place steps. You know, uh, yesterday it was the opening of the bookstores and, and the flower shops and the hair salons. And, and on the 1st of June, they will be opening restaurants for takeaway. And the thinking here is, you know, restaurants can do better in the summer and will be good for tourists eventually because people can sit outside and the, the virus is thought to spread less well in warmer weather. But tourists aren't anticipated to begin arriving until the 1st of July. That's when the country sort of has that threshold to allow them in. And they're hoping that maybe August, which is their biggest month of the year, can get some level of business. But nobody from the prime minister on down to the small businessman here is fooling themselves thinking, yeah, uh, we dodged the bullet of, uh, of COVID-19 phase one and there's a silver bullet coming to fix the economy and it's called tourism. They're not even sure that that bullet, if you want to call it that, the people that generate the money when they arrive are actually going to be sort of technically able to fly around freely, planes this, or, or, or health passports, whatever it'll be. This is such such an important point because we're hearing from the airlines what their anticipated recovery is, and they're saying two, three years. So if you sort of tie the pieces of the story together, the belief from them, at least, is we're simply not going to be traveling the way that we were before, particularly for your reason, that I think people are going to be reluctant to see infection spread or what the risk of crossing borders looks like, Nick. What is the probability, the possibility that we see 
concerted action in Europe to coordinate this, to discuss, to make sure that borders are protected, but they're also open to allow people to travel safely. Every country has a vested interest in this. Greece, because it, right. it feels that it got the first phase right, hopes that its voice is being listened to in Europe. You know, I was speaking to people on the Western Isles of Scotland where they, they, they haven't had any recent infections for several weeks. They don't really want to see outsiders arriving there yet. And, and islands here in Greece, although they want tourists, um, there'll be the same sentiment. You have to have confidence, confidence in the tourists that they're going to come and be safe, confidence in the community that they're coming to that the community is going to be safe. And part of that assurance comes from the airlines saying that the people we're bringing you and moving around are safe. And we know that typically, uh, you know, international agreements of this sort of level of detail and, and different national interests are hard to hammer out. But there's an expediency here to it, and that is, you know, it's tourism, it's business, there's an expediency, and perhaps, as we've seen trying to develop vaccines, etc., that expediency for business as well as the cure will make decisions happen faster. Nick, you've given me goosebumps. Confidence and coordination, vital. Nick Robertson, great to have you there. Thank you so much. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move this morning. U.S. stock markets here in the United States are up and running as expected. We do see a positive open, a continuation, in fact, of the late-day rally we saw on Monday. All this, though, amidst fresh evidence of the pain, the economic pain that the shutdowns are inflicting on global businesses. Let me walk you through what we've seen. Fiat Chrysler pulling its earnings guidance after posting an almost $2 billion quarterly loss. In the meantime, GE's aviation unit is set to cut some 13,000 jobs. Elbrands is scrapping plans to take Victoria's Secret private. Then to the car space again, car hiring hurts may be forced to file for Chapter 11-2. And Norwegian Cruise Line says it may be forced out of business. Paula Monica joins us on all of this. Paul, the economic damage here piling up, as you can see. For me, there's some key stories here. There's weaker retailers that have been disrupted or were ordinary, orderly, ordinarily struggling before this. Hertz cars disrupted by the likes of Uber, Lyft, for example, and then the travel industry, which we know is severely damaged. None of this, I think, is unexpected, unfortunately, with what we're seeing. Yeah, unfortunately, Julia, I agree with you. None of this should be considered a surprise at all. I mean, we know that you look at Victoria's Secret, you know, there have been hopes that they were going to sell to private equity. But, you know, the question now in an environment like this, where so many stores are closed, can a company like Victoria's Secret that was already struggling because it was disrupted by competitors like Aerie and Madewell and others, you know, how could they really survive in a market like this? So, you know, L Brands is hoping to still go through with this transaction where they can spin off Bath and Body Works into a separate publicly traded company. But what's that mean for Victoria's Secret? I think that remains to be seen. And then you look at Hertz. The good news with Hertz, if you want to call it that, is that they just filed with the SEC this morning saying that they've reached a forbearance agreement with some of their lenders to give them a little bit more time to work on a financing deal. They now have until about May 22nd or so. So we might not get that bankruptcy filing this week as originally reported because they're going to be working on a deal with their lenders. But 
as you point out, Waymo, Tesla, Uber, all of these tech companies have disrupted the rental model for cars. Paul, you raise a great point here, too, and that is by the time we start to hear about these chapter filings, the plan for the future is normally in place. It's been talked about. What are they going to do with the debt? How are they going to restructure? What does a slimline version of the company look like? What about the ones that we aren't hearing about here, the companies that are struggling with debt loads, struggling to rearrange their finances? This is also what I worry about. Exactly. I mean, we talked about this yesterday. J. Crew. good news for them is that right. there is a plan. They filed for bankruptcy. They pledged that they will come out of it with lower debt loads. And once stores can reopen in the wake of the pandemic that shut down the retail industry, they hopefully can get back on track. Obviously, you know, not sure that's going to happen, but at least there's a plan. There are many other retailers out there that we talked about, the likes of Sears, which already went Chapter 11 once. Could they do the proverbial Chapter 22? Are we going to see JCPenney and others that are struggling also potentially have to close more stores and file for Chapter 11? It might be some time before those companies are able to actually make those reorganization plans in the wake of what's going on right now in the global economy. Yeah, and that's the challenge. And it sort of belies the performance that we're seeing in stock markets, I think. But that's a whole different story. Paula Monica, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, it's not just retail that's been upended by the pandemic. The work environment, too, is unrecognizable. How we interact is, quite frankly, never mind work. Offices around the world are closed and tools that connect workers virtually are seeing a surge in new users. Among them is Slack, the company once called the email killer. The app combines chat and internal mail into channels to create a one-stop solution for work conversations and beyond. Joining us now is Stuart Butterfield. He's the CEO of Slack. And just for full disclosure, we also need to say that CNN uses Slack internally too. Stuart, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for um, being on the show. You recently told your workers that, look, you have to get used to this idea. We're probably not going to be back in the office before September of this year. Talk me through that decision and what response you've had from employees. Um, It's a decision that's based on when we think we're going to expect or uh, require employees to come back in. And I think the minimum for that is September. And it's it's a mixed reaction, to be honest. I think there's a lot of people who are comforted um, by knowing some kind of time um, and, and want to be able to feel safe. And I think others who are um, always hopeful that they're going to be able to, to get back to some kind of normalcy uh, and maybe a little bit stressed out from being cooped up with the like, kids and the spouse and everyone trying to do video calls all day. Are you being conservative based on what you're seeing with the health yeah. risks? We are being conservative. It's the health risks. It's also, you know, kind of being a good citizen. Uh, we're not an organization that um, that needs to go first. I don't think there's any kind of prize for that. We're surviving pretty well um, in this work from home and, and remote work environment. Um, so no pressure to come back to the office. Um, and and you know, I think we're likely to go last. You know, it's interesting. You're in a relative luxury position of being able to make that choice because people can work from home. You're also pretty punchy about leadership and the handling of this. I just want to read our audience a tweet that you mentioned because I do think this is really important. You said, from my perspective, wasting April was worse than wasting February. The virus was inevitably going to infect many people. Many were going to die. But now we've found nearly the perfect worst of both worlds. Balancing point, economic devastation, plus no progress and no plan. 
Stuart, what do you want to see as a leader of a company? What do you want to see from the leaders of this nation? I would love to see a strong federal response. I think it's um, it's too much to ask of the governor to try to coordinate at, at that level. And when I say that, I mean uh, I don't. I'm not an expert on on the specifics of the response, but I think we have things like the Army Corps of Engineers who could be building uh, testing stations nationwide. We have a lot of resources at the federal level um, that should be deployed. And I think part of it is just uh, articulating the vision, um, getting people on board. It's not dissimilar in in some ways from leading a smaller organization. People want to have a plan and people want to feel comforted. And I think that, you know, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a real pullback um, and and lack of leadership at the federal level, which will be difficult to overcome. It's a difficult message, but I think it um, it needs to be heard. So thank you for sharing it. Stuart, I do want to talk about the business, too. It's funny, back in 2016, when Microsoft sort of got into the game of looking at video communicating in this way, you wrote them a letter saying, look, we're genuinely excited to have competition, but actually this space isn't as easy as it looks. And I I listened into some of the Microsoft earnings call last week, and they didn't stop mentioning their product. In fact, I lost count of how many times they, um, they talked about teams. If you had to write that message today to Microsoft, what would it say? That's a good question. I hadn't hadn't actually thought about that. Um, Well, I think what we've seen over the last um, couple months, a huge surge in usage for a whole bunch of tools, for Zoom, uh, for Microsoft Teams, for Slack, um, and showing up in different areas, though. I think that um, Slack is specifically designed to get messages out of inboxes, which put the individual first, and into channels, which put the the team or the organization first, and kind of uh, drive organizations toward a greater degree of alignment and therefore agility. Uh, We've seen product announcement after product announcement on the team side, which is focused on voice and video calling, which I think is a um, a very important feature. Microsoft had 100 million people using Skype for business that they're transitioning over. Um, So I think that a lot of what we said in 2016 has kind of borne out in the sense that uh, the actual space that that Slack has carved out and the business that we've carved out so far hasn't really seen any competitive pressure from Microsoft. And very quickly, what you're seeing today in terms of users of your business and the growth in users, do you think that's maintained? Do you think the new normal, at least for a while, is what we're seeing today? Distance well, communication. It's, it's kind of it's easier to, to think about the short term and the very long term, and the medium term is a little bit more cloudy. We saw an enormous surge in new customers and new teams signing up for Slack and uh, increased usage among existing customers. And in the long run, I think this um, is going to open up a lot of possibilities in the software business more broadly. Organizations that thought they could never work remotely, you know, or that would have been a three to five year transition when they have to do it in a week, turns out they can do it in a week, which I think opens up a lot more possibilities for digital transformation. In the medium term, however, I think we still have no real idea how this is going to affect small and medium businesses, what the real economy is going to look like, um, you know, two or three quarters from now and how long that's going to take to come back. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag in the, in the medium term. Yeah, and that's the challenge. Stuart, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for um, sharing your thoughts and uh, wisdom on leadership. Stuart Butterfield, CEO of Slack. We'll stay in touch and stay safe, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up on First Move, a bird's eye view of the global economy from one of the world's largest distribution and transport companies. That's next. move 
XPO, one of the biggest logistics and transport providers in the world, not immune from the impact of all the lockdowns we've seen, says first quarter revenues were down around 6% from a year ago, with more than 1,500 locations all around the world. XPO uniquely positioned to take the pulse of the global economy. Joining us now are XPO Logistics CEO Brad Jacobs. So fantastic to have you on the show. Just talk me through what you're seeing, because I said it there and I meant it, whether it's logistics or transport or distribution facilities, you have a leading indicator sense of what's going on in the world. What are you seeing? Well, Julia, you're right. We are a leader. We're the first to go down and we're the first to come up. Uh, And we have a good window into what's going on in the economy in certain geographies. So if you take the perimeter of France, UK, Spain, we're, not, we're the largest transportation network there. If you look at all of Europe and you look at logistics, we run about 800 warehouses worldwide. About half of them are in Europe. And we're the largest e-fulfillment platform in Europe for e-commerce. We see a lot that's going on. Here's what we're seeing in Europe. Let's start there. In Europe, it, it tanked hard and then it bottomed out about four weeks ago and it's come back fast and furious. So if you look at our LTL volumes, our less than truckload volumes, they're up anywhere between 12 and 23% in a three week period. Uh, if you look at the UK, UK it's up a little bit less than that. It's up like low single digits. That's not surprising since the UK was hit by the pandemic afterwards. If you look at the logistics in Europe, The bottom was around April 14th. You might say, why am I picking that one date? Because we track all our customers when they closed the warehouses, when they didn't have work to do. And at the worst point, it was April 14th, and we had 49 warehouses closed. And today we have about 25 closed, and that's that's working through. Let's go over to the United States now, Julia. In Julia, we don't see that. In the United States, we see it came down hard. It stabilized at the bottom. It's not getting worse. It's not getting better. It's not getting better yet. We hope it's going to get better over the next few weeks as businesses reopen. For instance, our automotive customers were at zero. Now they're reopening over the next few weeks. We have to see how it plays out. That's interesting, the point that you make. Is the lack of rebound in the United States expected just because we're that much further behind what you're seeing, particularly in Western Europe? Or is that, do you think about a a lack of confidence, perhaps, or a slow re-entry to reopening? I I think it's the former. I I think Mm. that the pandemic hit China first, and we have some capacity in China that got hit like everybody else. That started back in January, and now that's back to almost normal. It then came over to Italy, and then it went to Spain and France, then it went to the UK, and then a couple of weeks later, it's around middle of March. Remember Friday, March 13th, Friday the 13th, the infamous March 13th. It came here in a major way and, and things started shutting down. So it's only yeah. natural that we'll come back later than Europe. I want to just ask you, you made some really quite fascinating comments in, a, in your, your letter to uh, employees and to investors. One thing was about the the work and the efforts that you're making to support your employees and you put them first and foremost, including their mental health, which I thought was important. But the other thing you also mentioned, and it stood out to me, was that you said the crisis has made partners of fierce competitors in our industry. We've all had to pull together. Do you think this lasts and how are your employees doing? 
I don't think it lasts forever with the same intensity as it's happening during a crisis. In a crisis, kind of forget pettiness. And maybe after the crisis, we'll get normal again. We won't be as petty, but we'll still compete each with each other very, very fiercely. Um, on our employees, that was our first thought when the pandemic hit here is, how do we protect our employees? We have 100,000 employees at quarter end. How do we fulfill our responsibility to keep them safe at work? They're the frontline employees actually coming to work every day, not sheltering in place and going into harm's way. How do we protect them? How do we protect them physically? How do we protect them uh, emotionally and psychologically? How do we pr protect them financially? So from a physical protection point of view, we had to get smart real fast and we read up everything we possibly could immediately from the government guidelines, from the experts and so forth. And, and we implemented them with, with haste right away. And they've been working, which is great. We gotta stay vigilant to make sure they keep working. In terms of the financial health, we've incentivized people, we've rewarded them by uh, giving them raises, by giving them special bonuses, by giving them a lot of paid time off and encouraging anyone who's feeling sick or is in contact with someone feeling sick to stay away from the office, we'll pay them anyways. I think then, there's a lesson in here for, for other leaders. Brad, we have to um, we have to wrap this up here, but um, we will get you back because this is a fascinating discussion and we will continue. But uh, Brad Jacobs there from XBO, a lesson, I think, in leadership, particularly where essential employees are concerned. So thank you. Thank All you. Right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Nike donates to workers on the front line. Speaking of leadership, fighting COVID-19 and dancing for joy. Two reasons to be cheerful if you're Elon Musk. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Our finally today has a bit of a skip in its step. Nike's donating 30,000 pairs of shoes to healthcare workers around the United States. The shoes were specifically created after Nike designers went to see how people work at a hospital in Oregon. They will be given to healthcare workers and to the Veterans Health Administration. Some perky shoes for our heroes. And the coronavirus is throwing some anomalies in car sales data. Right now, the best-selling car in the UK is the Tesla Model 3. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders said 658 were sold in April. Bear in mind they dropped some 97%, that's car sales, in the UK. Perhaps they racked up those orders before the lockdown. Also baby news for Elon Musk, proudly tweeting this picture of his baby boy with his partner, the singer Grimes. That is a very cute baby. Oh, good grief. I hope they're not real. Anything's possible with Elon Musk. That's it for the show. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 